Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 22, where Paul read for us a little earlier. The title of the morning's message, The Marriage of the Lamb. <laughs> Pray for my voice. When the mold is high, it affects this. So I hope to get through this. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And a wedding was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Uh, This morning's message is um, probably one of the more joyful messages we'll have the privilege to study because it deals with the rapture of the church. It deals with uh, the wedding that will take place and then the reception that will take place after the wedding. Um, I'm going to put something up on the screen to lay out our Bible study this morning. It's in three different stages. We have um, the marriage of the Lamb, and as you can see on the screen, it's, it's broken up into three stages. The, the betrothal stage, uh, that's when the selection of the bride is chosen, and also the payment of the dowry would be exchanged. And then we have stage two, the presentation stage, that's when the bride is taken to the father's house, and uh, the marriage service is performed. By the way, I want to congratulate uh, Nick and Bridget Mitchell, who were married here on Friday. Are you guys here this morning? I didn't think so. (laughs) And um, then the the third section is the celebration stage, and that is when the church returns to earth, and we have um, the judgment of the nations, But it talks when we read here about cast some into outer darkness. When you read Matthew 25, and it talks about the sheep being separated from the goats, there were people who will be saved during um, the tribulation period. But they don't necessarily return with Christ. They die. And then those goats 
um, we're told who will not enter into the kingdom age were cast into outer darkness. And that's Matthew 25, where it talks about um, um, them weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, a very serious and somber reality. Not only is the tribulation, as we studied yesterday at men's prayer, going to be a terrible time, but um, on the other hand, we have one of the most joyous occasions, and that is, is the wedding feast itself. So with that being said, um, I would like to read something. It's actually going to be a little bit. Um, it's from Zola Levitt. Who remembers Zola Levitt? Show your hands. Zola uh, had a, a TV program for years. He's Jewish. And he wrote this little booklet. It's called, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read what would have been a traditional Jewish wedding during the time of Jesus. And to me, there's a lot between the lines, as as my wife used this term this morning. It's actually a template for the rapture of the church. And I think you'll see it as I read through it. So bear with me as we go through this. This is from Zola, and um, I'm quoting him. It's called A Christian Love Story. Uh, The Jews had their own particular way based on the Old Covenant. And the Lord, as we shall see, followed those traditions in choosing a bride. We should appreciate that the Jews had no dating or courtship as we now think of those things. Marriage to them was a very practical, legal matter, establishing by contract and carried through by exacting procedure. These customs exist in a form today in the Jewish wedding ceremony, and in Jesus' time they were most fascinating and complex. When the young man of Israel in Jesus' time saw the girl he wanted or the girl his father wanted for him, he would approach her with a marriage contract. He would come to her house with a covenant, a true legal agreement, giving the terms by which he would propose marriage. The most important consideration in the contract was the price of the bridegroom what he would be willing to pay to marry this particular bride. Now, the bride price is still utilized today in parts of the Mediterranean and in African worlds. And while it seems most archaic to us now, it had some useful purposes. First of all, if the bridegroom was willing to sacrifice hard cash for his bride, he was showing his love in a most tangible way. Secondly, it was a favor to his future father-in-law. We must recall that in those days of farming and heavy labor, it was something of a liability to raise a daughter. A family with sons would prosper more because of the built-in workforce. But a family with daughters would expect to consolidate their losses when the girls were mature enough to attract bridegrooms. And so the father of the bride was more or less paid off for his earlier expenses and for his patience and skill in raising a girl to be a good uh, marriage material. The bridegroom would present himself to the bride with this agreement, offering to pay a suitable price for her, and she and her father would consider his contract. If the terms were suitable, the bride and the groom would drink a cup of wine together. This would seal the bargain. Uh, This cup was most significant It signified the bridegroom's willingness to sacrifice in order to have his bride. 
It was offered as a toast to the bride, and of course it showed the bride's willingness to enter into the marriage. Then the groom would pay the price. It should be said that this price was no modest token, but was set so that the new bride would be a costly item. That was the idea. The young man had no delusions that he was getting something for nothing. He would pay dearly to marry the girl of his choice. When that matter was settled, the groom would depart. He would make a little speech to his bride saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And he would return to his father's house. But at his father's house, he would build her a bridal chamber, a little mansion, in which they would have their future honeymoon. He would then he would appreciate that this was a complex undertaking for the bridegroom. He would actually build a separate building on his father's property or decorate a room in his father's house. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful. One doesn't honeymoon just anywhere, and it had to be stocked with provisions since the day since the bride and the groom were going to remain inside for seven days. The construction project would take the better part of a year, ordinarily, and the father of the groom would be the judge of when it was finished. We see the logic here, obviously. If it were up to the young men, he would throw up some kind of modest structure and go get the girl. (laughs) But the father of the groom, who had been through this previously, was less excited, would be the final judge on when the chamber was ready and when the young man would go claim his bride. The bride, for her part, was obliged to do a lot of waiting. She would take the time to gather her clothes and be ready when her bridegroom came. Custom provided that she had to have an oil lamp ready in case he came late at night in the darkness because she had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. During this long period of waiting, she was referred to as consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. She was truly a lady in waiting, but there was no doubt that her groom would return. Sometimes a young man would depart for a very long time indeed, but of course he had paid a high price for his bride. Even though there were other young women available, he would surely return to the one with whom he had made the covenant. The bride would wear her veil whenever she stepped outside of her house, so that the other young men would realize she was spoken for and would not try to approach her with another contract. Today, the bride of Christ wears a veil. Those not understanding of our covenant try to make other contracts with us that would violate the one we have with our bridegroom. We are to resist those other offers and wait only for the one who paid for us. As year went on, the bride would assemble her sisters and bridemaids and whoever would go with her to the wedding when the bridegroom came, and they would each have their own oil lamps ready. They would wait at her house every night on the chance that the groom would come along with his groomsmen, sweep them all away the to a joyous and sudden wedding ceremony. Meanwhile, the bridegroom would be building and decorating with all that he had. His father would inspect the chamber from time to time to see if it was ready. If if you came along the road at this point and saw the young man working on his bridal chamber, we might well ask, when's the big day? But the bridegroom would answer, only my father knows that. 
Finally, the chamber would be ready. The bridegroom would assemble his young friends to accompany him on the exciting trip to claim his bride. The big moment had arrived, and the bridegroom was more than ready. We can be sure. He and his young men would set out in the night, making every attempt to completely surprise the bride. And that's the romantic part. All the Jewish brides were stolen. The Jews had a special understanding of a woman's heart. What a thrill for her to be abducted and carried off in the night, not by a stranger, but by one who loved her so much that he had paid a high price for her. Over at the bride's house, things had better be ready. To be sure, the bride would be surprised, since the groom would try to come at midnight while she was sleeping, but the oil lamps were ready, and the bride had her veil. And while she might be sleeping, her wedding dress in her wedding dress, she was definitely surprised. It, it's a wonder she would sleep at all as that year went on. Now, there were rules to observe in consideration of a woman's feelings. The groom couldn't just rush in after her. After all, her hair might be in rollers. I don't know if they had rollers in the first century. Actually, as the excited party of young men would get close to her house, they were obliged to give her a warning. Someone in the wedding party would shout. When the bride heard the shout, she knew her young man would be there momentarily. She had only time to light her lamp, grab her honeymoon clothing, and go. Her sisters and bridemaids who wanted to attend also had to have their lamps trimmed and ready, of course. No one would try to walk through ancient Israel with its rocky terrain in the dark of night without carrying a lamp. And so the groom and his men would charge in, grab the girls, and make off with them. The father of the bride and his brothers would simply look the other way, perhaps maybe making one quick check to see that this was the young man with the contract, and a wedding party would be off. People in the village might be awakened from their sleep by the happy voices of young people carrying oil lamps through the streets, and that's how they knew a wedding was going on. Today, we hear car horns honking. Back then, they saw lamps late at night. Those looking on would not know who the bride was because she was still wearing a veil, of course. But she would be returning through the same streets a week later with her groom, and then her veil would be off at the return of the bride with her bridegroom, All the people know just who got married, and they would realize the total significance of this wedding. When a wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, the bride and groom would go into their chamber, shut the door. No one else could enter. The groom's father, meanwhile, would have assembled the wedding guest, his friends, and they would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Since the wedding was actually going to take seven days, until the appearance of the bride and groom out of the chamber, it was hard to plan for. Occasionally, the host would run out of wine, as we can well imagine. The Lord himself graced a wedding at Cana with his presence and replenished the wine for the celebrants, as told in John chapter 2. But the celebrating wouldn't start right away. First, the marriage actually had to be consummated. Uh, The Jews were a most law-abiding people, 
and the law provided that the bride and the groom become one before their marriage was recognized. Thus, the friend of the bridegroom, the individual we might refer to as the best man, would stand near the door of the bridal chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. When the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friends through the door, and the friends would then go to the wedding guests and announce the good news. The celebration would then begin, and it would continue for an entire week. At the end of the week, the bride and the groom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. There would be a joyful meal, a marriage supper, which we might refer to as a wedding reception to honor the new couples. At this point, the bride would have discarded her veil since she was now a married woman, and all would see exactly who it was the bridegroom had chosen. The next couple of guests would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude the entire matrimonial week. After the marriage supper, the bride and the groom would depart, not remaining any longer at the home of the groom's father. They would go instead to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father, and then we shall return with our bridegroom to occupy the kingdom he has prepared for us. As the bride and the groom would travel back through the village, it would be appreciated by all onlookers just who the couple was and where their permanent home would be. And that was a complete Jewish wedding in Jesus' time, in all of its glory. Readers of the gospel can easily see the beautiful uh, analogies between the complex procedures and the manner in which the Lord himself called out his chosen bride. Perhaps there's no happier Bible study than this, this one. The church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament for a good reason. It is we who have a covenant relationship with the one who forgives sins. It is we who drink the cup with him, and we for whom the price was paid. We are the ones to whom he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and we are the ones who wait his sudden return. That's the longest I think I've ever read from anything here in all my years here. Let's go back to Matthew and uh, begin our study this morning with that much of a background. But I'm just curious before I get started, who uh, has heard what I just read before? Just raise your hands. Quite a few of you have, but more of you have not. And as we go through this, you'll, you'll discover that a Jewish wedding really is sort of a template of what we're waiting for right now. And so we'll be talking about the rapture of the church today. And let me begin by saying, oh, maybe 80% of people who call themselves Christians uh, do not believe in the rapture of the church. They don't take a literal view of the book of Revelation, which, which we'll be going to. And um, as a result, when we read here, many are called but few are chosen, there's not a lot, of, lot in, in what we call Christianity today that's really aware of what's next on God's prophetic calendar, which is the taking away of the church. Good place for an amen. And what we're looking forward to. Um, we'll look at the study this morning in these three stages. As, as you see on the screen here, it'll be the betrothal stage, it'll be the presentation stage, and finally the celebration stage. First of all, the betrothal stage. 
And if you look at, uh, go to uh, back to our text, Matthew 22, verse 2, and the facts of the marriage are this. Many passages in the Word of God teach us that the most fantastic and wonderful wedding of all times is yet to take place in the universe. This marriage is described through the parables of Jesus. And if you look at verse 2, we find that the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So it's in parable form, and the people that lived during Jesus' day would immediately have picked up on this because if you were a Jewish gal, you know, you grew up with the hope of wondering who your husband is going to be like, like any woman. Uh, they think about their wedding day. They dream about their wedding day. It's going to happen someday. And um, so the fact of the matter is that this wedding will take place. And um, the host of the marriage, the New Testament, very clearly presents as the father, as the divine host who gives us marriage. I want you to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, and picking up in verse 16. Similar to Matthew 22, but again, the harmony of the Gospels, as we, as we teach through the Bible, again, we want to see that uh, there's added information that's left out of one Gospel, but added in another. In Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 16, it tells us, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servants at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. They first said to him, Well, I've just bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask that you have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still, another said, Well, I have married a wife, and therefore I can't come. And so that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry, and he said to the servants, Go up quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and we still have room. And then the master said to the servant, Then go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the job of the prophets was to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. That was their whole job. The hope of um, the Messiah finally coming, that was their hope. But it says, if you're taking notes this morning, you might want to jot down John chapter 1, verse 11, where it tells us he came unto his own. He was a Jew who came to the Jewish nation as their Messiah. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. And so what we have here is a picture of the Jewish Messiah. Now, in, in one of the minor prophets, it talks about when the Lord comes. Somebody's going to say, a friend... Uh, uh, a Jewish person is going to say, where'd you get the wounds in your hand? And he says, well, I got them in the house of my friends. And it says, in that day when Jesus, is, when the Lord does come, there will be a mourning in Israel. 
Like there's never been a morning at any time. Nobody will want to be with anybody. And a family will separate because they'll be in such grief because of what they missed. How could we miss Jesus being our Messiah? And it's compared to losing your only son. And that's what it, emotionally, what the Old Testament tells us about this rejection. And so basically in this parable, the excuses are reasons that um, the Jewish people, a majority of the Jewish people, um, never came to know the Lord. So then we have Cornelius. Uh, He was the first um, Gentile to get saved. And they couldn't believe it. You know, uh, Peter's given this Bible study to these Gentiles, and right in the middle of his Bible study, the Holy Spirit uh, falls on Cornelius and the people gathered there. They said, this is unbelievable. A Gentile can be saved. Actually, the word dog is used there, sort of derogatory form. Unbelievable. Well, who are these Gentiles? Well, these when we read this parable, they're the ones that are the lame and the blind and the poor. And they, the master said, well, well, we've told them, and the idea here is go find more. And here is the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Everybody's invited. Whosoever will. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him will not perish. You're a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. And um, the invitation is given, but like any invitation, you can turn it down. You can decide, yes, I'll go to the party, or no, I won't. And so it is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. First given to um, the nation of Israel, but generally rejected. And then given to the uttermost parts of the world, the invitation is um, clearly laid out. All right, so the host here in John 14 of this marriage is clearly um, the father himself. He's the one that um, is initiates the wedding. Now, the bridegroom of the marriage, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The bridegroom of the marriage, of course, is the father's beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the bridegroom. Um, I'll we'll just read this one. Let's read the one from John chapter 3, picking it up in verse, um, uh, let's see, 27. Yeah, verse 27, John answered and said, this would be John the Baptist now. Now John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. This is John the Baptist. But I was sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is filled. Now, we read in another place that, you know, John was the greatest man who ever lived on this planet. He was the greatest prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But it says even the least in the kingdom of heaven are going to be greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because John is just a friend of the the bridegroom, but here he rejoices because the the wedding is going to take place and, and we're the bride of Christ. 
So the, the bridegroom marriage is none other than the Lord. Now, the bride of the marriage. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Give you a moment to get there. When Nick and Bridget um, called me, they both live in um, Colorado now. And uh, he, he was telling me that he met Bridget in Colorado, but she's from Ashwaubenon. So we had two people from Wisconsin <laughs> moved to Colorado, and that's where they met, and that's where they fell in love. Um, Nick was uh, part of our fellowship for many, many years, was baptized, and, um, but he hasn't been here since 2015, he told me. And um, we had the wedding here on Friday, and the verses I'm about to read to you are the very ones that I read to them. A little, little sidetrack here. Uh, when I do a wedding, you know, there's hundreds of books written on marriage. But when you get right down to it, and we're talking about what does God's word have to say about marriage, I address the man first. And then there's only one thing that the Lord tells the man to do. And then there's one charge given towards the gals. So as I read this, uh, this is basically... Uh, the message part of um, the wedding that I did on Friday with with Nick and Bridget. Uh, So let's pick it up in verse 22. This is what I told, looked at Bridget, and I said, Bridget, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the, the husband is the head of wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore... Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then I look at Bridget and I said, when you gave your life to Jesus and you became a Christian, and one of the things we learn when you're born again, you can't call the shots anymore. We call Jesus Lord for a reason. We're told to pray about everything. We can't make our own decisions. So we say, Lord, can we do this? Or Lord, can I do that? Um... And, you know, we wait on the Lord to give us his response. And then I look at the gal. I said, Bridget, you understand that when you became a Christian, that you said that Jesus is Lord in my life. Jesus is Lord. She says, yes, I understand that. I say, okay, now in the same way, if you understand that, the Bible says um, that you are to submit yourself to your husband in the same way that you submit yourself to the Lord. And then I tell her, you realize that's impossible, don't you? <laughs> Just for a reality check to make sure they're listen, listening. It's impossible to do that. But we have a saying in Calvary Chapel that God's commandments are God's enablements. In other words, he's not going to ask you to do something unless he gives you the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually perform it. So to submit... Especially in these days, you know, I think some of the people here it might have grounded them the wrong way because of, um, you know, just the woman's liberation and what's been going on since Mary Tyler Moore threw her hat into the air and, and, and changed the culture that we live in. And so to talk about submission is almost a dirty word, but it's beautiful in the eyes of the Lord when done biblically. And it's impossible to pull off. You have to have a relationship with Jesus to be a submissive person. Then I looked at Nick. And verse 25, 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the, the church. And so I looked at Nick, and I said, um, Nick, the Bible says here that you're to love just as Jesus loved the church. And I said, how did he do that? Well, greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for a friend. And um, I said, Nick, the way that you demonstrate your love for, for Bridget is that you lay down your life for her. And then I look at, at him and I say, you realize this is impossible to love like Jesus loved. And then again, God's commandments are God's enablements. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, if you're taking notes, this would be um, the order. I'm going to come back to this, but let me just, my Bible just opened up to it, so maybe I'm supposed to read this. <laughs> um, I want you to know in verse 3 that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And uh, it gives us this, this order that's there. Every husband here this morning is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. It's going to be impossible for her to submit to you guys unless you demonstrate that you're willing to lay down your life for her. And when she sees that, it's going to make her job a whole lot easier in submitting uh, to your husband. Now, you got this all figured out? I mean, what we just read, everybody understands it? Well, somebody nod their head or do something. <laughs> you understand? I mean, it's pretty basic, pretty straightforward. Husband's role, wife's role. And just when you think you understand what Paul is talking about here, he throws us a curve when you read verse 32. Let's read verse 27. For we are all members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Say what? Everything that we've just been talking about, I thought was rules and that are laid down, one for the husband, one for the wife. No. It's sort of um, playing out what is going to be. It's a great mystery. The marriage relationship is nothing more that's going to be worked out eternally. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Ephesians chapter 5 clearly lays out that um, the church is the bride, and um, we are still um, Colossians, Second uh, Corinthians 11, um, says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the espousal or the betrothal. And what we have now 
is, um, oh, let's go to the guests that we're going to have. Um, it's in the betrothal stage, but um, in general, the guests that we read about in Matthew chapter 22 in the wedding is a group which would include all Gentiles after the rapture. So after the rapture, of course, we're taken to heaven. But during the tribulation, we have what? We have the two witnesses. We have the 144,000 Jews. We have an angel that actually preaches the everlasting gospel. So you're going to have two groups of people. One will take the mark of the beast. And the other ones will be saved, and many of them will be martyred. But there's going to be some that get saved during the tribulation, but um, they will be the ones that uh, will, will, would not have been raptured, so they won't be coming back with them. Let's look at um, this first, and go back to the first one here, the, um, um, the selection of the bride. And we have here, Uh, In Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn there or I can just quote it, we have the betrothal. Uh, Matthew 1 verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused or betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Well, when they got engaged or when I was reading Zola Levitz. When he went and made the contract between Mary and Joseph, it was during that period of time that Mary got pregnant. Now, how would you like to be Joseph and explain that one away? And, yeah, right, God made you pregnant. <laughs> who's, gonna, who's going to buy that? The Pharisees even heard of um, the virgin birth when they were arguing with the Lord. And they actually said, well, we weren't born of fornication. And it was a slam at the Lord. They, well, we weren't born of fornication. What's the implication? He was, but he wasn't. Um, the Lord appeared to Joseph. Don't be afraid to marry her, Joseph, because she's been, um, she's a virgin that's going to bring forth. She's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And um, don't be afraid to take her as your bride. And we all know the story. That's exactly what happened. But it was during this period of time that we call the espousal or the, um, the selection of the bride and the betrothal. With this in mind, we can state that the marriage of the lamb is still in the betrothal stage. So where are we right now? Well, we're not in heaven, at least the last I checked. <laughs> and so we're not with the Lord, um, though not seeing him, the Bible says. We love him. And we long, we want to be with him. I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of not being able to do the things I really used to like to do athletically. And I can't wait for my new body. (laughs) I just hope there's ski hills in heaven, you know. I don't know if there is or not. But um, this longing um, that we are to have um, while we're in this place right now. And we're not to allow other things to distract us from wanting to go there first than to stay here. And I wanted David Hawking amen after that one. Amen. Amen. Our home is not here. 
This, we're in a betrothal stage, and we're watching and waiting. At least that's what the Bible tells us to do over and over again. Are you watching? Are you waiting? What are you longing for? Well, the Lord knows our hearts. He knows if this is genuine. And what a better way to illustrate it than a wedding. And uh, looking at it not as Jesus just being our Lord, but the love of our life and someday being our husband. That's what the marriage of, of the Lamb really is all about. So the bride has been selected. We read he in uh, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world was laid. Now, we have free will, but because God knows all things, um, this, this helps explain the idea of predestination as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he predestinated you and I according to his foreknowledge. So it begs the question, is there anything that God doesn't know? And the answer is no. He's omniscient, which means he knows all things. He knew before the foundations of the world that someday you and I would choose him of our own free will. And because God is God, he, can, he, he knows that. But you, it, it doesn't exclude the fact, like um, a Calvinist doctrine would teach, that you have no free will and that God predestinated people, some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. I like Dave Hunt's book that he wrote against Calvinism and Reformed theology. What kind of love is that? No, you have free will, and you can exercise it anyway. But God knows everything, and he simply knows, according to his foreknowledge, again, that uh, you would uh, choose him. So the, the payment of the dowry... The dowry has been paid, as we read in the story. The bride goes to the house, negotiates, and according to his love, he presents this dowry to the father. Uh, the dowry has been paid. If you're taking notes, um, 1 Corinthians, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. It says, Know you not that your body is the, the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Notice, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then in First Peter, again, if you're taking notes, First Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, the price has been paid for you. It was Jesus is the only one who could pay it. And as, as a result, um, we belong to him. We've been bought by him. So this pretty much wraps up stage one in our study this morning. Stage two, the presentation stage. All right, we're in the, the place right now while we're still here, but there's coming a time that nobody knows the day or the hour. I hope it's before this Bible study is over that the Lord is going to come. And that's, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter four, the presentation stage. In the Jewish wedding, we learned that the proper time the father would send to the house 
of the bride's servants carrying the proper legal document. The bride would then be led to the home of the groom's father. And when all was ready, the father of the bride would place her hand in the hand of the groom's father, and he would then place her hand in that of the son. Now, in talking about the rapture in Matthew chapter 24, as it's going to be one of the clues, it's going to be like the days of Noah. And the days of Noah were very, very corrupt. Lawlessness abounded. Do we have lawlessness abounding? I mean, every day on the news, you read about another shooting somewhere, somebody breaking in somewhere, and it's just, you know, we're sort of getting numb to the lawlessness that, that exists in our world today because it's so prevalent. But right before he talks about the rapture, when I teach you Matthew 24, um, I'm saying it's not about the first coming because we know to the day. Daniel 9 tells us the very day that Jesus would, would be worshipped. And that was April 6, 32 AD. But when it comes to the rapture, he says, no man knows the day or the hour, but my father only. And, uh, and the father is going to be the one who determines, all right, um, the Lord said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. If you're in Revelation chapter 4, let me do a little bit of background. I could really get sidetracked here. I've got to be careful. <laughs> um, first of all, my heart is grieved because even some Calvary chapels today are talking about, not talking so much about prophecy and, um, and the book of Revelation. And my answer to that is, how can you not? If you're going to teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse, last week's study we had 11 verses and we had three prophecies, Remember? And so you can't teach the Bible without dealing with Bible prophecy. Another good place for an amen. So what we have, th- this uh, precious book, Revelation 1.3 says, I'm special. Blessed is he who reads this book right here. Then the key to the book of Revelation is chapter 1, verse 19. If you're taking notes, the Lord tells John, write the things that you've seen. That's chapter 1. Write the things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3, present tense, the church age. And then it says, write the things that are after these things. And that would be after what? After the things of the church. Now, if you look at, if you have a red letter Bible this morning, just look at the first three chapters. Notice that they're all in red. And it's, it's uh, speaking to Jesus, to the church. But as soon as you get to Chapter 4, verse 1, there's no more red letters. Why? Because now the third division of the book of Revelation write the things that are going to take place after. After what? After the church age. Well, the church age began with Pentecost, but it's going to end with the rapture. And so we find here in verse 1, after these things, what? After the things of the church. I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After these things is the Greek word metatonta, and it literally means after the things of the church. And now we have the church, as you look in chapter 5, we find that uh, verse 9 
the church, uh, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Question, where's the church? It's in heaven, waiting to return and reign with the Lord for a thousand years as kings and priests. The church is, is in heaven. So when we look at the second part of our study this morning, we have the bride taken to um, the father's house. That is a picture of the rapture. Isn't it an interesting coincidence that when a Jewish wedding takes place and they actually go into the bridal chamber, they're by themselves for how long? Who remembers? Seven days. And I believe as you study the scriptures, the one the reasons that we believe in the, the pre-trib rapture is that always you always see pictures like this um, unfolding. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I believe that the seven, um, seven days in heaven is a picture of the, the pre-trib rapture being taken up uh, before that great day of the Lord. If you're taking notes, First Thessalonians chapter 5. Speaking about the day of the Lord, and God has not appointed you, church, to wrath. Well, what is the tribulation? It's the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And for those who say that we're going to be in that period of time, I say, what kind of honeymoon is that? You know, it's, it's uh, hell breaking loose on, on this earth. And so the last verse of chapter 5 says, Therefore, com- comfort one another with these words. I find no other comfort than any other position than the pre-trib wrath because it puts the church in the tribulation. So they'll be there um, for seven years. That's the length of the tribulation. From chapter 6 to the end of chapter 16. By the way, let's go to chapter 16. Remember I told you there's no red letters after chapter 4? Well, there's one exception to that. And to me, this is very interesting. Because uh, when, you, when you read some of the things that are in the book of Revelation, you've got you to be kidding me. In men's prayer yesterday, we were talking about the demon locust that, that are going to be on the earth. They have power to cause such pain that, that um, people will want to kill themselves and they won't be able to die because of these creatures that come out of the bottomless pit. You've got to... Come on, Dwight, you're telling me that a pit's going to open up and demon locusts are going to come on the planet? Yep, that's exactly what the Bible says. And we don't want anyone, you know, to go through this terrible period of time. But at the end of chapter 16, again, we were were in, uh, in men's prayer, we're in Exodus. And we were studying about the judgments, and we went through nine of them uh, yesterday. But one of them was the plague of hail that actually destroyed trees. There was a warning, make sure that um, uh, you, you get your cattle out of the fields, make sure you're not out of the fields because they will be killed. And that was one of the plagues that uh, was part of the judgment on Egypt. Coincidentally, where the Jews were in Goshen, no hailstorm, only in the land of Egypt. And we find it repeated here, the last plague of the great tribulation period 
is it says in verse 21, a great hail from heaven fell upon man, every hailstone about the weight of a talent, which is 75 pounds. And that will put a dinghy in your car. (laughs) Because of the plague of the great hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. This destroys planet Earth. When planet Earth is plummeted by 75 pounds to 125 pounds, we don't know. But that will pretty much wipe out and flatten this planet. But right before the Battle of Armageddon, we have verse 15. For those of you who have a red-letter Bible, doesn't it seem weird that you look down at this, and all of a sudden, it's the first time since the end of chapter 3 that we have red letters. That's because this is pointed to us while we're still here in the betrothal stage. See, this hasn't happened yet. But it says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Right before the end of this terrible seven-year period of time, Lord says, stop, I just want to remind everybody that I'm coming. And make sure that you're ready and watching and that you don't let anybody take your garment, keep your garment. In other words, keep yourself in the Lord, watching and waiting for him to return. The Heavenly Father, um, when the time is right, uh, will send the Lord. Again, if you're taking notes, this is John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. Everybody's real familiar with it. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and he did, go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This would conclude um, the second stage up on on the screen here, the bride taken to the father's house, and um, the, the marriage... I believe, takes place actually in heaven. And that brings us, um, let's go back to Matthew chapter 22. This brings us to the final section, the celebration stage. And this this is with the whole idea of um, after a wedding, if we have a wedding here at, at Calvary, we have two stages to it. And the first stage is actually, you know, dad walking the bride down the aisle, just like Bridget's dad walked her down the aisle. And I say, who gives this woman to this man? He says, her mother and I. And so dad sits down, and we have the wedding ceremony. They give their vows to one another, their pledges. And I pronounce them afterwards, husband and wife. Then I say, their favorite part, you can kiss the bride. What they don't know is every kiss that I've ever done it in a wedding and watched, I rate them from one, one to ten. Bridget was right up there with a seven because she smacked him really good and then she whispered in his ear, I love you. And I said, that's a, that's a seven for sure, maybe a seven plus. I don't tell them that, but now everybody knows. Maybe they're watching, I don't know. Congratulations, you guys, if, if, if you're here. But then, after that, then it's a party, right? Sometimes we have it here. Sometimes they go and um, have the reception somewhere else. 
but it's usually in, in two stages, and we all under, understand that. And so our job is simply to be ready. Um, in Luke 12, it says, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and be yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Verily I say to you that he will gird himself and make him to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if you're in Matthew, again, um, verses 2 and 3, we've read it already, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain man who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call all those to invite to the wedding and they were not willing to come. The time of the marriage when does the wedding transpire? Well, in view of what we've already been reading, it would seem that the wedding service, the presentation stage, will be privately conducted in heaven, perhaps shortly after the Bema Seat judgment. The wedding supper, and this is what um, some people don't understand. They say, well, the, the wedding takes place in Revelation 19. No, that's the wedding supper. That's the festival, but the the wedding ceremony itself transpires in heaven. Uh, the wedding supper, the celebration stage, will be publicly conducted on earth shortly after the second coming of Christ. But we get married and we're in heaven, just like in a Jewish wedding, for seven days, seven years. Uh, we'll be there, but when we return with Christ, that's when we have the wedding banquet. Um, we read that in Revelation 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And so we have this third stage here that we return with the Lord, and uh, that's when that will take place. The certainty of, of um, the wedding itself as we begin to wind this up this morning. Um, you know, earthly marriages can be prevented because of various unexpected problems. In an earthly wedding, there could be a last-minute refusal on the part of the bride and the groom. I've heard stories, you know, the groom showed up, but the bride didn't. I've never had that happen to me. I usually like to um, mess around uh, with the bride or the groom because they're a little bit nervous. So to lighten them up, I'll go back and I'll look at the bride and I'll say, you know, it's not too late. <laughs> or I'm in the back with the with the guy who's going to get married. I said, we're not out. You didn't say I do yet. And the door's right there. You can go if you want to. And I do that to hopefully lighten them up a little bit. But, um, you know, it isn't a, a done deal until they say, I do. And uh, they give their vows and pledges before the Lord. Then it's signed, sealed, and delivered. And then, then it's official. And we went out, and I actually signed documents from Colorado after, after uh, Nick and Bridget's. So as the bride-to-be looks forward to the wedding day, I want you to do some at, something at this time. I want you to take out your bulletin. Just take out your bulletin and look at the front of this bulletin. I'm going to ask you to do something with it. Because we've had a study this morning on the marriage of the Lamb. It could be head information for some, but 
I want you to remember this Bible study this morning. And what people do with things that they don't want to forget, you know where they end up? Who can tell me? The things that, a picture that you don't want to forget, where does it end up? Where? On a refrigerator. It ends up on a refrigerator. And I got precious moments and memories from my parents to my dogs from whatever. And they're on my refrigerator. And I thought, Lord, how, how can we maintain this Bible study this morning? You know, I gave you a study which is information primarily. But we're talking about romance here. And if a picture can describe a thousand words, certainly this one can. We have this woman in her wedding dress looking out of her window, waiting, longing, hoping that today might be the day. Perhaps today. You know, it really could happen. No man knows the day or the hour. Perhaps today. As the bride, how many times has the Lord said, be watching and be waiting? For you know not the time the Son of Man is going to come for his bride. Our job is to make sure that our hearts, and that's what I like about this picture, um, is worth a thousand words. That's how we should be longing in our hearts, not only that the Lord comes back as our Lord and Savior, but also to be with our our bridegroom. And this picture, I think, uh, says says it like a thousand words. So I'm going to ask you to take this uh, home with you and put it up there and as a daily reminder that perhaps today. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, help us um, get past the part of the instructions that do really feed us. And Lord, help us see the romance in this, that you're relating to us as a husband towards his bride. Lord, create in us that anticipation, that longing. As we look at this gal looking out the window thinking, maybe today he'll come for me. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.